The Interchange is brought to you by Prisma Energy Solutions. Prisma has a unique financing model for CNI and utility-scale energy storage systems. Their customized lease options can help you save money by reducing energy demand, participating in energy and ancillary service markets, improving renewables integration, increasing system reliability, and reducing carbon footprints. There's no design risk, no technology selection risk, no maintenance hassle, and the upfront capital expense is greatly reduced compared to a system purchase. Check out their website to learn more. It's prismaenergy.com. The interchange is also brought to you by Vertzilla Energy. Vertzilla is a global leader in flexible power plants, energy storage, and complete life cycle solutions. Vertzilla is leading the energy transition with the Atlas of 100% Renewable Energy, an open access tool based on the modeling of 145 countries and regions worldwide to illustrate the cost-optimal 100% renewable energy system. Check out vertzilla.com slash atlas. That's W-A-R-T-S-I-L-A dot com slash atlas. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. Shio Khan is with me. He's my co-host and managing director at the VC firm Energy Impact Partners. Hey there, Shale. Hey, Stephen. This week, why data centers are the epicenter of the clean energy economy. Now, we've all seen headlines like this. Your Netflix binge may be frying the planet. Cut back on email if you want to save the environment. Every Google search you do contributes to climate change. Bitcoin could be the final nail in the coffin for climate. These are all real, by the way. I presume, Shale, that you've encountered this framing before. Sure. I feel like you see this pop up every three months in some random like Gizmodo article or something like that. Yes. And I have written headlines that are not this inflammatory, but I have definitely written stories about energy use uh, of the internet. Um, And do you buy into this framing? Well, no, now that I've, I mean, uh, you know, I think it is true. We'll go into this in much greater detail, but it is definitely true that our increasing computational load and data storage requirements have resulted in a bunch of new electricity demand, uh, significant, you know, sort of like over a percent globally of electricity use now comes from data centers. On the other hand, it is not the um, harbinger of doom that I think those headlines imply. And that's what we're going to talk about today, because those headlines and stories like that rely on this perception that the physical internet, the actual data centers that hold the giant supercomputers that now run society are this out of control energy suck. And that's actually not true, says our guest. Uh, Yes, of course, data centers collectively use a lot of energy, but they're becoming hyper-efficient. They're now this magnet for renewables development, and they're helping us unlock the powerful algorithms and computational tasks that run the clean energy economy. And our guest has been researching data centers for decades. It is Jonathan Kumi, an expert on sustainable IT. John was a scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. He's a former lecturer at Stanford University, and he now runs his own research and consulting outfit on the environmental impacts of information technology. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, So before I start this show, I do have a disclosure. My production company is making a podcast about the world of data centers 
and the physical infrastructure behind the internet. It is uh, for one of the larger tech firms. It's coming out later this year. I actually interviewed John for that show as an independent outside expert, and it was such a good conversation. I wanted to invite him here on this show because he's the go-to person focused on the environmental impact of these supercomputers in the sky uh, that have so much influence on our lives. So let's start by getting our listeners up to speed on the scale of today's data centers. They're often called hyperscale data centers. What are we talking about here in terms of size and computational ability? Hyperscale data centers can be hundreds of thousands or even millions of square feet. So there are industrial scale facilities that can draw tens of megawatts of power uh, comparable to a big industrial plant like a, an aluminum smelter. So they're very big facilities. And they've expanded dramatically over the last decade and a half, two decades. I mean, a couple of decades ago, a data center could be a few thousand square feet. And now we're talking hundreds of thousands or millions. Um, so so who's building them? So the, the big hyperscale providers are tech companies whose names you know, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, uh, Apple, uh, Amazon. All of these companies are building these giant facilities. Now, it's important to understand that as these facilities are being built, they are taking computing loads from older, much less efficient data centers, some of them like the small one, the you know, few thousand square foot one that you described. So it's not just that new ones are being built, it's that they're much more efficient than the old ones. And the old ones are going away as we shift the computing loads from the old inefficient data centers, typically what we call in-house corporate data centers. Those are getting uh, eliminated as the computing loads go to these big hyperscale facilities. And these hyperscale facilities, what, what does it mean in terms of like total percentage of energy use around the world? Well, for all data centers, it's about 1% of elect all electricity use goes to data centers. Is that and big or so, small? What does that mean? Well, to me, that is a relatively small amount of electricity given the amount of value that we get from that computing. So hyperscale data centers and all other data centers for that matter are delivering computing services to people and businesses. And those computing services are incredibly valuable. They allow you to, for example, on a Zoom call, avoid a trip to do your commuting, or they allow a company to analyze a product in a way that they never could before using some uh, sophisticated modeling, or they allow a company to restructure itself to better take advantage of current technology and, and, and better optimize their operations. So, so these facilities allow for a restructuring of the, of the economy. They allow for people to uh, garner a huge amount of value from them. And to me, it's a, it's a very good use of 1% of the world's electricity. Uh, what most people don't realize is that that's actually a decline compared to where we were about 10 years ago when it was closer to 2% uh, of the world's electricity. So what we see is that data center electricity use uh, is you know, relatively flat over the last 10 years. And as computing loads have grown tremendously, we've been able to uh, keep electricity use relatively flat uh, while still delivering uh, much more in the way of computing services. When we talk about data center energy use, you know, I think it's relatively widely understood they're 
uh, heavy sources of load. I think they're generally speaking, like hyperscale data centers are the most electricity load per square foot of, of anything that we have, including more so than aluminum smelters and so on. Um, but we, I, we think of them, I think, on the outside as like a monolithic thing. It's a data center. To what degree does the energy consumption, the total load of a data center, depend on the purpose of that data center, the actual compute tasks that are being done within it? This is a complicated question. There are data centers who are that are specifically focused on a certain kind of load. So, for example, Google has very substantial loads for doing search. So when you type in a Google uh, query, it comes back to you. It sends the request to their data center, and it comes back to you with some answers. Uh, those kinds of very uh, homogeneous loads that are very similar, those can be op highly optimized. And so uh, companies that have big loads like that, they can actually highly optimize their data centers to make them the most efficient data center they can possibly have for this particular load. And that turns out to be one of the, the great ways for any computing device to become a lot more efficient. You can depend on uh, hardware changes like people have done in the past with Moore's Law and making semiconductors better. But also there's ways to optimize special purpose computers for specific loads to get vastly more efficient. So those ones that are that are focused on a specific kind of load can be incredibly efficient. Uh, the ones that are more general purpose tend to have lower utilization. They tend to have slightly less optimized configurations. But even the those less efficient uh, facilities, if they're modern, if they're big, if they're hyperscale, that means that they're much more efficient, like 10 to 100 times more efficient than a corporate data center. And one of the factors is that these big hyperscale facilities can have very high utilization of equipment. And that means that instead of utilization that's, you know, a few percent, it's 30 or 40 or 50 percent. So that's a factor of 10 in energy use and emissions and cost per compute right there, just from having these hyperscale facilities designed and operated in a sensible way. Can you go into a little bit more detail about util what utilization of equipment means? I mean, we think of the utilization in terms of electricity load from a data center as being pretty flat. I think we should talk later about the degree to which it can be modulated and the degree to which it's flexible, but, you know, sort of baseline as being base load load effectively. But it sounds like the utilization rate of the equipment is not perfectly correlated with the electricity consumption of the facility. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, the the loads for data centers tend to be relatively flat. There is typically some variation, 10, 15%, because, of course, the outside temperature changes. And so that, you know, the input air going into your facility uh, changes. And so that'll affect your overall efficiency. But generally, it's a kind of 10 to 15% sort of effect over the course of a day. Uh, for utilization, what I mean is it's similar to what you call a capacity factor for a power plant. And so if the power plant runs 50% of the year, uh, the capacity factor is 50%. It generates half of the electricity that it would if it ran flat out the whole year. And so it's a similar sort of uh, metric for the utilization of any sort of capital equipment, uh, whether it's a server or the data center as a whole. And when you have very low utilization, it means that 
you're spreading your fixed costs, you're spreading your fixed energy use, which is the energy needed just to have the data center operating, you're spreading that over many fewer computations. So if you think of it in terms of uh, energy or emissions or cost per computation, the more computations you can get out of a specific uh, server or a specific data center, the more you can spread those fixed costs over lots more computations. And that drives the cost down a lot. Right. In other words, you are going to be cooling the data center regardless. So the electricity consumption may change a little, but isn't going to change a whole lot depending on the amount of computation that you do. So ideally, you want to do as much computation as possible given the load that is going to be pretty fixed. Yes, that's right. And so servers in the past... 15, 20 years ago, servers would always draw the same amount of electricity to first order, whether they were idle or whether they were running at 100%. There was some small variation, but not much. Over time, the companies that manufacture servers have gotten much better at reducing the the fixed load. In other words, the load of the, the electricity use of the server at zero computational output. They've gotten much better at reducing that. And so now you can buy servers that have a fixed energy load of you know, 20%, 30% of the maximum. So there is some variation as you ramp up and down, but there's always going to be this fixed energy use that you just can't escape. You need, if a server is operating, it uses at least you know, 20 or 30% of its maximum. And that's the thing that high utilization really helps with. Right. And so that's one of the reasons why data center energy use has been flat and has um, not climbed like a lot of people, you know, 10, 20 years thought it would. The utilization rates have been extremely good and have been continually improving. Yes, that's right. Uh, utilization in hyperscale facilities I, you know, can be 10 times more typically than in these internal corporate data centers. And, and there's a good reason for that. If you think about... Uh, facilities that are owned by one company or maybe even facilities that are operated and owned by one work group within one company, you can understand why the utilization would be low. And the reason is because uh, you have a small number of users with a small amount of diversity in those users. And that means that you end up with servers that are not utilized very much at all, single digits, low single digits in some cases. Uh, when you have a hyperscale facility, you have a big facility. You also have a facility with lots of users and lots of different kinds of users. And so that means they can spread the computing load over more parts of the day. And it means that they can keep utilization up high. And that reduces costs for everyone. And so, so it's very important for profitability of data centers to get their utilization rates up. Uh, it's also important for reducing the emissions and the energy use per computation. So that utilization piece is really important because it's not just about reducing energy use or the efficiency of a data center. You can actually you know, use math algorithms to better utilize computational tasks to match with low carbon resources. And this is kind of the new frontier of data center operation. Yeah. I mean, I think this is one of the most interesting things in this space. And uh, there's a, a big announcement a couple of months ago from Google where they, I think it was on Earth Day actually, where they basically said, okay, now we are 
um, taking some forecasts from uh, another company for emissions intensity of the grid, and we're going to modulate the energy consumption from our data centers to try to minimize the impact on emissions that they will have, the, the impact of the electricity consumption, which is interesting just in the implication that it, it means Google can modulate its demand. It means it's that the data centers that Google is operating are at least to some degree a flexible resource on the grid. And so, John, I guess I'm curious from your perspective, you know, they didn't attach any numbers to that. What, how shiftable is the load in, say, a Google data center? How flexible can they be? Well, I can't speak to the specifics of any Google data center. I don't have any internal knowledge of that. Uh, what I can say is that when you have a hyperscale provider of sufficient scale, then they can have facilities that are separated by geography, by hundreds of miles or even thousands of miles. And that opens up opportunities for shifting certain kinds of loads to places where there might be an excess of renewable power that's you know at negative cost or zero cost. And so uh, the extent to which a company can do that is dependent on the kinds of loads that it has. And one of the issues that comes up is the question of latency. So the speed of light is very fast, 186,000 miles a second, but it's not infinite. And so if you were to shift your data center load from California, say, to New York, uh, that's still a, there's a time delay introduced there. It's, it's a tenth of a second or a little more and then there might be some other delays with you know having more switching technology between you and the, the load. Uh, so and that tenth of a second has a measurable effect on the value delivered from certain kinds of computing services. And and Google and these other companies know exactly what those numbers are. And so there is there is complexity around whether you know which kinds of loads you can shift, how much you can shift them, how much latency you can put up with. Uh, so it's an enormously complex uh, balancing act. But the point is that for certain kinds of loads, it's no problem. And so that's a really uh, beneficial result. And to the extent that a big company like Google can shut off servers that it's not using, that you can have uh, closer to what, uh, what folks have in the industry have called energy proportional computing. So the, the energy use scales exactly or as close to exactly with the computing load as you can as you can make happen or they call it carbon intelligent computing which shale sounds like a term that you'd really like given your carbon transparency fixation i do like that term steven you know me so well um i thought that so when google made the announcement i you know when you dug into it I, they were basically saying they they are already doing one thing and they're planning to do another thing. The thing that they were saying they're already doing is sort of what you were alluding to, John, which is taking compute tasks that are not super time sensitive. And so I think they gave the example of like tagging images or something, which are tasks that they have to do, but they don't have to do with zero latency or near zero latency. And then scheduling those tasks specifically for when the grid is more decarbonized. So say the data center is in an area with a lot of wind power and the wind is generating overnight um, and they have excess generation then, that's when they would schedule those compute tasks. So that's like a temporal shifting. And then what they said they 
plan to do in the future, but it sounds like you're not doing yet, is this geographic shifting. Can they specifically assign certain compute tasks to geographies where the grid is further decarbonized at any given time um, rather than doing it in, in other geographies? So, I mean, those both seem like to me to be luxuries that very few companies have, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook. I mean, those that have lots of data centers and lots of geographies, but it seems exciting to see nonetheless. And I, and I wonder the degree to which there is an economic incentive sufficient to get the data center operators to do this beyond just Google's desire to do it for greenhouse gas mitigation purposes. I think there is an economic incentive and, and you can see it uh, when you look at the Cal ISO's real-time prices. California has a, an electricity market and you can see in real time what's powering the grid and then what the marginal prices are. And there are times when the sun is, is going well and wind happens to be blowing more than usual that you end up with uh, negative, even negative prices. That's marginal, those are, those are kind of wholesale marginal prices. And so it could be very profitable for a company that's able to move loads around to do that. Uh, so I think you do need the sufficient scale and the companies that you mentioned have sufficient scale. You know, this has been a dream now for 10 or 15 years. I remember a, a, a white paper that Hewlett Packard wrote uh, around you know, 10, 15 years ago talking about the possibility of this. But it's only now where this possibility is becoming a potential reality. So why is this a big deal? I mean, Google and a bunch of other big tech companies have these goals to not just get renewable energy, 100% renewable energy on a yearly basis, but to start to do it in real time. And that's obviously very complicated. And this is one step to getting there. So how important is this step when you consider how much more complex these goals for getting clean energy to serve these data centers are for these uh, tech companies? I think it's very important. And the reason is that electricity generation, as we've alluded to already, from solar, from wind, is variable. And it happens at times that are often predictable, but usually for uh, resource, you know, solar and wind resources that, as they're designed today, uh, they're limited in their capacity factor, they're limited in the time of day when they can deliver electricity. Uh, for solar, of course, it only works when the sun is shining. For wind, it's more complicated, and it's, there are questions around how you design turbines to uh, change capacity factors and so on. Uh, but the main point is that these variable resources only deliver electricity at certain times, and the way to integrate those variable resources into a modern power grid, well, there's many ways to do it, one of the most important sources of flexibility to make that easier would be able would being being able to modify loads to move loads around in time or in space and so if you can do that then you can have uh, i think a very substantial impact on the economics of renewable energy and on the economics of you know for the data center operator and so I think it's a, it's a very important development. And obviously, there's going to be a lot of uh, innovation around this. But I think it's something that uh, these big players are going to be increasingly able to do. 
A quick pause here to talk about our supporters of this show. We're brought to you by Prisma Energy Solutions. Prisma helps developers, municipalities, and commercial industrial customers reduce energy demand charges, generate income, increase grid reliability, and reduce their carbon footprint. Their five-year lease program from Prisma allows customers to benefit from energy storage without being exposed to the financial and operational risks of ownership. They have relationships with top-tier suppliers and integrators in the energy storage industry, and they'll customize lease options to fit your company's needs. There is no designer technology risk, no maintenance or warranty hassle, and the upfront capital expenses are reduced to a minimum compared to a purchase. At the end of the lease term, customers have the option to renew, return, or purchase the battery system, which creates even more project value. Check out their website to learn more. It's prismaenergy.com. We're also supported by Vertzilla Energy. With 72 gigawatts of power plant capacity in 180 countries around the world, Vertzilla offers flexible power plants, energy storage, and life cycle services that ensure increased efficiency and guaranteed performance. Vertzilla has taken a leading role in supporting the energy sector as it undergoes a transformation toward renewable energy, uh, greater flexibility, greater efficiency, and based on the modeling of 145 countries and regions worldwide, Vertilla's team was able to find the cost-optimal energy mix for a 100% renewable energy system in all regions. It's known as the Atlas of 100% Renewable Energy. And uh, you can see for yourself how these different technologies in different power systems work together. The goal of the Atlas is to help customers choose future-proof solutions that will optimize operational costs of their power systems. Check out the Atlas and see your optimal path at vertsilla.com slash atlas, W-A-R-T-S-I-L-A, vertsilla.com slash atlas. One of the things that often I think is not talked about when we talk about the relationship between data centers and energy is the fact that data centers need uninterruptible power. They need 100% uptime basically all the time. And so basically every data center has backup power, right? And they need full resiliency. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where that backup power is coming from currently or historically. Is it diesel generators? Is it flywheel batteries? Like what are the requirements that these data centers have? And do you see that changing at all as new technologies arrive? Backup power is a very important part of data center operations, but there are some complexities. First, a traditional corporate data center will have backup batteries. So those might last, you know, keep the data center going for an hour or two. And then they will have backup diesel generators. And oftentimes they'll have multiple diesel generators and sometimes even multiple sets of batteries. So they have different layers of redundancy. Now, this is more of an old-time way of designing data centers. And what's happened as the, the hyperscale facilities have gotten more clever and as loads have been virtualized and, and are able to be moved around is that the, the facilities themselves and the servers are now designed differently. They're redefining resilience in a different way. So in the old days, you would you would buy a server that had two power supplies. And the idea was, well, if one power supply fails, the other one would kick in. Both of them would be always running at a very low level, regardless of the operation of the, uh, of the server, so that it could kick in. The, other, the, the good one would kick in if the, if the other one died. Well, what happened over time was that Companies like Google redefined what they mean by resilience. 
They redefined it as keeping the software stack running rather than keeping the server running, the physical server. And so nowadays, the way Google designs a server is it has one power supply, and if the server fails, the power supply fails, they just move the load over to another server. And so by redefining what we mean by resilience to focus on keeping the software stack running, we're able to have benefits on the energy efficiency side, the physical efficiency side, because we can now move loads around and, and if a server dies, we just route around it and the load goes to another server. So I think that that redefinition of redundancy has changed the game to some degree. Now, all of these facilities still have, for the most part, diesel generators with the one exception of, a, of a, a, an eBay facility in Utah that came online in 2014. Uh, that's a really interesting one because what they do is they run the data center off of Bloom fuel cells. And that's the, the first line primary electricity supply for the data center is the fuel cells. So they have natural gas coming in, the fuel cell runs on that, generates electricity, that powers the data center. The connection to the grid is the backup. So that's a, that's a very unusual installation, but uh, they, when they put that in, they actually commissioned, before they put it in, they commissioned uh, some academics to do a, a failure analysis, and it turns out to be more reliable than the old way of, of doing things. So there's different ways to skin the resilience cat. Uh, there have been some innovations over the years, but uh, all of these facilities do highly value resilience. They're just starting to redefine resilience as being more a function of keeping software going rather than any particular physical device continuing to operate. Is the backup generally, whether in the form of the battery that gives you one hour of storage or the diesel generator that sits behind it, are they sitting idle with the in a normal hyperscale data center? Are those sitting idle 99.95% of the time or are any of them operating the electricity market just because they're sitting there and they can? Almost always they're sitting idle. The batteries are just charged and they're waiting. They can do a failover real quick, as you could imagine. Uh, but the, um, the diesel generators typically are not operating. There are certain requirements for operating them as tests, you know, for testing purposes. And that, you know, is a very small number of hours a year. And that's typically constrained also by local air quality regulations. So those are pretty tightly constrained. So, John, I want to go back to the framing of this episode, which is that there is a perception still that data center energy use is wildly out of control. And the more internet you use, the more you are contributing to climate change. And you first got interested in claims and projections about energy use in data centers while you were at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And you started really looking into this. There were these you know, wild predictions for energy consumption that came out. What did they say and who was behind them? This was in 1999. There were these two guys who were funded by the coal industry to talk about how electricity used by computers was growing rapidly. They claimed that the internet used 8% of all electricity, that all computers, including the internet, used 13% of all electricity, and that total was gonna to grow to half of all electricity in the next 10 to 20 years. 
They also would raise a wireless Palm Pilot over their heads. And this was one of the early attempts at making a wireless uh, personal digital assistant. So very primitive compared to the phones of today, but they waved it around and they said, you know, the networking electricity behind this wireless Palm Pilot uses as much electricity as a refrigerator. And we looked into every single one of these claims uh, and the claims had get, were getting traction in part because it was the first tech boom. There was the California electricity crisis. And so they these people played into the idea that, you know, the this increase in demand was causing the crisis. And then uh, there were economic actors whose incentives were to take these projections at face value. And so I, I got a call. I was a staff scientist at Lawrence Berkeley Lab. I got a call from the power systems people at General Electric. They said, well, is it true? You know, is, is, is electricity demand really going to grow like this? And they were hopeful because they thought, well, it means we can build a, a lot more power plants. And I had to disappoint them in that situation. So there's a bunch of uh, cases where people who whose economic interests kind of were aligned with more electricity use, they wanted to believe this. And so there was, it was kind of convenient for them to believe it. Uh, there were, there were uh, a handful of, you know, probably five or six of these bank analyst reports. You've probably seen these things where they do some sort of topic analysis. And I have, it's all documented in uh, some peer-reviewed articles and in, in a book. Uh, the idea is that they were promoting this point of view that electricity use was going to grow really fast. So here are the stocks that you should therefore buy. The original report was titled The Internet Begins with Coal. So that tells you who funded these two guys in the beginning. It was the coal industry. The argument they were making was if you do anything to constrain coal use, which is important for generating electricity, you're going to kill the Internet economy. So, John, that is from the 90s, but I've heard this argument much more recently. Is it still coming from the same people? How has this found its way into the continued narrative around Internet infrastructure? It turns out that no matter how many peer-reviewed articles you write showing that someone is wrong, they can still keep talking. And so uh, a few years ago, Mark Mills got up again and, and raised an iPhone above his head and said, the amount of electricity for the networking for this cell phone is equal to two refrigerators because, of course, refrigerators have gotten twice as efficient since 2000. Um, but, of course, he was, again, off by a factor of 2000, which is what we discovered when we looked at the first claim. Uh, so they keep talking. There are many other people who just they they believe somehow that the economic importance of information technology, which is everywhere in the business press, somehow means that IT must therefore use a lot of electricity. It turns out not to be true. And we've shown it over and over and over again. <laughs> At a certain point, you know, what what else can we do? You know, ultimately, we, we need more and more people in the investment community, more and more people in important institutions to realize that these numbers are not true and they should stop promoting them. So I want to talk a little bit about where things are heading in the world of 
big data computation. It, you know, the trend over the past decade, as you described, has been toward these hyperscale data centers, away from individual corporate-owned data centers and on-premise computation. Now we have all these hyperscale data centers because everybody's doing any, everything in the cloud, but there's a somewhat newer trend, I guess, toward edge computation where you know we're starting to do things that actually can't handle the latency that it that you get when you're trying to send a bunch of data back and forth to the cloud autonomous vehicles being a good example of that and so there's increasing focus on doing some of the computation at the edge so that you minimize the payloads that you're sending back and forth to the cloud which means almost inherently we're going to be doing more distributed computing and so i wonder what that we think means in terms of the future of energy consumption from all these workloads? Edge computing has become more important and will continue to be more important. Any significant computing load is likely to be delivered in some sort of modular data center. If you're going to do this edge computing, you do it in a container. You do it in a device that is kind of the size of a freight, you know, like the things you see on the back of big trucks. These standard shipping containers now are a pretty common place to put servers. There's been a lot of different designs that have been uh, tried over the years. But the main point is this is a mass-produced device that can be highly optimized. So I would expect that the efficiency of these mass-produced edge computing devices are generally going to be pretty good. You're not going to have the economies of scale that you get from having a hyperscale facility, but... For a lot of loads, you don't need that. And as long as you have high utilization, the efficiency of these uh, devices is going to be very good. Okay, let's talk about Bitcoin mining. What's up with Bitcoin mining? We hear that, and we have talked about Bitcoin, or we've talked about blockchain a decent amount on this show when it was really hot in the energy space, maybe a year and a half, two years ago. And we talked about the energy consumption of Bitcoin mining. And, you know, when, when things really started accelerating, people were saying, oh, look, mining operations are now using as much electricity as Ireland. This is how much it's going to spike. It's going to, you know, be the tipping point for climate change. What do we know about these energy intensive tasks? And are they improving? And is this a similar story to what we saw in the early days of data centers? Bitcoin is complicated because things change so fast. And it's, it's kind of been a, uh, occurring in a, an unmonitored part of the market. And so what, is, what has happened is within the span of a few years, there's been increasing focus on Bitcoin as a source of value. And what that's meant is that more and more companies are turning to doing computations to mine Bitcoin. What ends up happening, though, is that these devices are not well studied by the people who understand markets for ICT. And so we've had only a little bit of focus from the big companies like Gartner and DataQuest and uh, IDC to understand what's actually going on inside these facilities. And at the same time, we've had many people making unfounded claims similar to what went on about the internet back in 99 and 2000, unfounded claims based on cherry-picked anecdotes that uh, Bitcoin was going to take over the world. It was going to become this massive source of computing load. And the last time I looked at it, this was now a year or so ago, 
I think we were at about 0.2% of global electricity associated with Bitcoin. And the problem, of course, is that, you know, it's highly dependent on the price and the price is very volatile. And when the price goes down a lot, which it has had, you know, in the last six months or so, then, of course, Bitcoin mining slows down a lot and they, people shut down their servers. So, so in general, it's a small load. It's not increasing at furious rates. It's highly variable. And the people who have a, a stake in hyping this, they continue to argue that this is a world-changing computing load and, and electricity load, but there's no real evidence for that. And it's very easy for someone to cherry-pick numbers in a field where you know, every month matters. Uh, you, 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 if you're going to make an estimate of electricity used by Bitcoin, you have to specify the day that you're making that claim for because if things change so fast. So if we think about the biggest builders and operators of data centers, hyperscale data centers, who's doing the best in terms of sourcing clean energy, building in a sustainable way? I can remember in the maybe the 2013, 2014 timeframe, there was a lot of pressure on Facebook because it was, you know, using primarily coal to power its data centers. And the company actually responded to bad PR that it was getting. And it has since, you know, drafted industry standard renewable energy goals. Uh, all the major tech companies are citing these data centers now in a place where they can get easy access to renewable energy. When they plan out and build the data center, they're going in and you know, negotiating contracts for renewable energy with the power supplier. And it's a key piece of what they do. So um, when we think about the range of goals, how companies are responding, how they're building out these facilities, who's doing it the best? And are there any major laggards? So I I don't have a, a rank ordering. I think that the, the question of who's doing the best is complicated. I think that all the companies that are sourcing renewable power directly, making contracts to develop renewable power that otherwise would not be built, they're clearly doing a very important public service. They're customer-facing companies largely, they have high margins. I think the focus that uh, Greenpeace has in particular brought to these questions has been good and useful. They did a report, I don't know, five or six years ago uh, for the first time looking at sourcing of renewable power and efficiency options for data centers. In the beginning, they had some teething issues and there were some numbers they needed to fix. But over time, the attention that they brought to this question has actually moved the big players towards much more efficiency and also much more sourcing of renewables. So I think that that's, uh, that's a really important development in the last six or eight years. Uh, for people to understand what happened. And I think you know, th- there's three pillars of low emissions data centers. There's the infrastructure efficiency, so dealing with the overhead, cooling, fans, pumps, uh, all those sorts of things that you need to keep the data center going. And then there's the IT efficiency, which is related to, uh, to uh, utilization. Uh, and then there's the percentage of electricity that comes from zero emissions sources. Those are the three pillars. And all companies seem to be making 
efforts in all of those areas. In the hyperscale facilities, the infrastructure efficiency, the uh, they call it PUE, power utilization effectiveness, the ratio of the total data center load to the IT load, that's now typically 1.1. So that means there's a 10% overhead associated with keeping the data center going. That's pretty good. That's a problem that's almost been solved in most climates. And so that side is you know, the place where that's pretty much done. People are really focusing now on the IT efficiency side, making the, the optimizing their servers and, and setting up their uh, facilities and, and software in a way that allows them to have very high utilization. And then the third prong is this uh, push towards much more uh, sourcing of renewable power, ultimately sourcing it every hour. And so, so I don't have a ranking, I'm sorry, but I know that all of them are making progress in these three areas. And I think that this question of moving loads around either temporally or geographically is going to play a role in helping these companies uh, generate more power or use more power, uh, zero emissions power, at the time when they need it. So I can at least feel comfortable knowing that I didn't melt any glaciers or cause any Arctic wildfires with this interview. Every human activity at this point, with, with few exceptions, generates some greenhouse gases. But ICT is, I think, one of the highest valued uses of electricity. Moving bits is almost always better than moving atoms. So better to have this interview over the internet than for me to drive or uh, you know, take a plane even to, to do a talk somewhere. Because moving bits is almost always better than moving atoms. And increasingly, we're gonna be substituting information technology, not just for travel, but also for, you know, to substitute, I call it substituting smarts for parts. So to, to create devices through their own intelligence where you don't need to have certain kinds of backup, where you don't need to have certain kinds of uh, devices. Like an electric car, it doesn't have a, tra a transmission, it doesn't have, a, doesn't have oil, it doesn't have all these other parts. And if you don't have a part, it can't fail. And so that's you know, our ability to use electricity and electronics to substitute for physical processes is going to become increasingly important in the years ahead. And that's going to allow us to generate a whole lot more efficiency than we would be able to do otherwise. I feel like bits over atoms is the theme of 2020 globally. And a Absolutely. great band name. Yeah, yeah, that would be a great band name. But it's absolutely one of the most important things that we're realizing is that a lot of times you don't need to travel. And that's, I think, a structural shift. And think of you know the corporate travel budgets and how they're going to change in coming years. Sure, there's going to be some bounce back, and there's still going to be people who have enough money who want to go to Fiji. But... Uh, but the corporate travel budgets, you know, if you can do two-thirds of what you used to do by traveling by using Zoom or some other video conferencing, then, you know, I think a lot of companies are going to decide that that's actually a better use of their, not just money, but also the time of their people. Because travel is very, it's hard on the body, it uses a lot of time of people, it, you know, it's stressful, 
And so I think we're going to see a structural shift, and that's a structural shift enabled by information technology. It couldn't happen any other way. So, so I think it's important to, to think about that bits versus atoms. Every time you, want, you think you need to physically do something or go somewhere, you should think about whether you can do it some other way. Speaking of, I think I heard a train behind you during this during this last part of the interview. So don't they know that we're talking about bits over atoms? <laughs> well, if you're going to travel, you might as well go by train. That's the most yeah, efficient way to I go. Guess, I guess that's right. <laughs> well, John Kumi is a sustainable IT expert. He has written tons of uh, peer-reviewed literature on this, and he's got a bunch of work on his site at uh, kumi.com. We'll link to it. And we really appreciate your time, John. Thank you. My pleasure. I had fun. Shale, speaking of bits, uh, we cannot get together uh, in physical form. So we are doing a live show coming up here next Wednesday. And I hope that people can join us. And I think, what are we doing? We're going to try to convince each other of an underappreciated piece of the energy transition. Is that what we're going to do? We're going to do a bit. Yeah, we're going to do a bit. (laughs) What is the bit? Uh, I think we each have to try to convince each other of something that the other person does not believe about the energy transition. All right. Well, I'm going to be preparing over the next week. So I hope you can join us. You can sign up in the show notes of the podcast, and we'll be doing that midday on Wednesday, the 24th. Uh, thanks. Shail Khan is my co-host. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. We are a co-production of Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio. You can find us all on social media including the interchange show there and that's a good place to suggest show ideas either through direct message or just tweet at us and we really appreciate you being with us i'm stephen lacy and this is the interchange conversations on the future of energy